Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to talk this morning about a very expensive gift. We read about it in a couple of places in the New Testament this morning. First of all, Matthew 26, 6 through 13, which was read in your hearing just a moment ago. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said, And then why do you trouble a woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In John's account, years later, we read uh, uh, this account written years later, six days before the Passover, John 12, 1 through 8. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I have four lessons in this morning's sermon. Number one, what we can learn from the gift. Number two, what we can learn from the criticism. Number three, what we can learn from Jesus' appraisal in response to the criticism. And number four, what we can learn about the gospel accounts. Number one, what we can learn from the gift. Number one, it was totally unique. I think about what Mary gave on this occasion. And each one of us has a unique combination of personality, intellect, talents, abilities, resources, and opportunities. And no one of us can give to the kingdom exactly what uh, you can give. There is a sense in which your contributions to the gospel are yours and no one else's. I understand, and so do you, that, that our gifts overlap, but no one can give exactly what you can give. This was Mary's. It came from her heart. It was her gift and hers alone. It was also costly. We read about an alabaster, alabaster flask. We read about pure nard. We read about a monetary assessment of 300 denarii. One denarius was approximately a day's wage for a common laboring worker. 
one thing that I think about when I, I, I consider that the size of this gift is where did a Palestinian woman come up with the wherewithal to purchase ointment that was this expensive? You're talking approximately a year's wages for a common laborer. Where did Mary get something this expensive? It had to have been the equivalent of a lifetime of savings, perhaps even the equivalent of a family inheritance. Um, maybe Martha and Lazarus pitched into this, but, but whatever the case, we're talking about something that was very, very expensive. It was motivated by love. No one forced her. No one twisted an arm behind her, her back. She truly loved Jesus. She had already had a history with Jesus. We read about in, in Luke, the 10th chapter, how that you have two sisters throwing a, a special occasion for Jesus as the guest of honor. And Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. And Martha was distracted with much serving. And Martha was so frustrated with her sister Mary, who was sitting there listening to Jesus teaching while she was working, that according to Luke chapter 10 and verse 40, she tells Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. I have two daughters, and I can remember on multiple occasions when one was irritated with the other, they would come to us as parents and say, tell her, tell her this, tell her that. And that's exactly what, what Martha does. Tell her then to, to help me. But Jesus did not do so. He instead says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Of course, Mary was not only a sedate listener, she was also a doer. And not only did she listen to Jesus' teaching, she internalized it to the point where Martha was not the only doer in this family. What Mary does here proves that she also was a doer of the word, and not a hearer only, James 1.22. I'm reminded of another occasion where we see both Mary and Martha, John the 11th chapter, where Jesus raises Lazarus, their brother, from the dead. And interestingly enough, both sisters ask the question when they see Jesus, uh, Lord, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died, or they both make that, that statement, rather. Uh, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Mary asks it the second time, Martha asks first. But when Mary asks, she asks with tears in her eyes. And it's that occasion that introduces to the shortest verse in the New Testament that Jesus wept. It was Mary's tears that forced Jesus to weep along with her and the rest of the folks there and to, to go out to the tomb and uh, say, Lazarus, come forth, which he does. In response to Martha earlier, Jesus had said in John 11, 
verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Even though that was said to Martha, I believe it had to have been communicated to Mary. And so Mary and Martha both had, had much to be thankful for. Mary had already been given great reason to appreciate the difference that Jesus had made in her life. And this was one way that she could give back and show appreciation for what she had already been entrusted with. Finally, it was motivated by Jesus' impending death. The death of Jesus, if it could only motivate us to the same heights of sacrifice as it motivated Mary. We love because he first loved us. We read in John or 1 John 4 and verse 19. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, we read the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Mary's motivation is spelled out in this text to prepare Jesus' body for burial. This was done in advance, not after the fact. It was an act of supreme thoughtfulness on her part. Well, we not only have a great gift, we have great criticism that follows the gift. What can we learn about the criticism? Well, first of all, it was petty. Have you ever noticed that some of the loudest criticism comes from false assumptions and the shakiest foundations of fact? People assume the worst, and then they blow those assumptions completely out of proportion. Maybe one false assumption followed by another, and then another, and then another. But this criticism was not only petty, it came from impure motives. Both Matthew's account and John's account tell us that greed was behind it, which is even more despicable because this apparent concern for the poor is, uh, is, is wrapped up, or this apparent concern is wrapped up in benevolence for the poor, and yet it's a cloak for the underlying greed. Thirdly, it was thoughtless and it was mean-spirited. Did the critics even think for a moment about the consequences of their own actions in devaluing the gift and the person who gave it? Jesus' question in follow-up was, was, why do you trouble the woman? Why do you trouble her? They weren't even thinking about what their words did to Mary. And finally, it originated ultimately from a hypocrite, from Judas Iscariot. And he focuses attention on what a great waste her gift was when he went out and wasted something infinitely more precious than ointment. I'm reminded of Matthew 16, verse 26. Or what will a man be profited if he gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
Mary spent a lot of money on ointment, yes. But what a waste Judas gave in, in wasting his own opportunity and his life. What we can learn from Jesus' appraisal following the criticism. It's interesting to me that when the critics came out of the woodwork and attacked Mary, that Jesus rebuked the critics and defended Mary. I believe we can learn a great deal from that. I want to give you a, a little secret here, and that is this, that it's impossible to do a great deal of good in this wicked world without accumulating critics. In fact, I have often thought in my lifetime that the more good that you accomplish, the more critics, unjust critics, that you accumulate. In fact, I, I think there's almost a direct correspondence, a, a direct correlation between the amount of good that a person does and the amount of unjust critics that uh, seem to hang around him. Maybe it's the threat that good is, is being accomplished and that threatens those who, who uh, are comfortable with the status quo. There have been a, a few critical moments in my life uh, where someone took an unfair shot at me, and I'm sure that's happened to you. But what really hurts at times like that is when we're trying to do something good and we're trying to do it with the very best of motives, and then critics come and they take shots at us and our supposed friends just sit there in total silence. Has that ever happened to you? I guarantee it, it's happened to me. And, and it's very painful. You, you learn who your fr true friends are at, at times like that. There was a moment some years ago where there was a situation that happened and uh, I was trying to do some good for people and it was misunderstood and uh, there was a lot of gossip involved and, and there were a lot of, of uh, people who, who rose up and, and, and criticized me and uh, one brother stood up and put his own neck out on the line and, and really came to my defense. Now that's, that's a friend for life, I'm telling you. When you've got someone like that who, uh, who, who will stand up for you when no one else will. And it really was a lesson for me that uh, whenever I have a brother or sister in Christ, and I know that they are serving God faithfully out of the highest of motives, and someone else comes along and blasts their contribution. Am I going to cower in silence, or am I going to stand up and defend my fellow Christian? It's a great lesson there for, for all of us. But here's another lesson. Even if you're the person being criticized, and you have no one to rise up and defend you in your hour of need, don't ever forget that there is one person who will never ever let you down and that is Jesus in 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 1 Paul says to his trusted friend Timothy in verse 8 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the uh, gospel by the power of God. In verse 12, he says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In chapter 4, he says, in the shadow of his own impending death, verse 6 beginning, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then he writes what I think is probably one of the saddest verses in the entire New Testament. In fact, I, I, I weep internally whenever I come across this verse. Verse 16, here an old soldier of the cross, the Apostle Paul, has done everything he possibly can to defend the faithful cause throughout his, his life since he be, became a Christian. And he reaches the very end of his sojourn, and he's facing a Roman trial. And he says in verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But then some of the most beautiful words in the entire New Testament, the next two verses, verses 17 and, and 18. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul had confidence in the Lord. And I'll tell you something, that same confidence is shown to Mary. When Jesus silences the critics and he comes to her defense. But he also establishes that nothing given to Jesus out of love is ever wasted. Yes, this was an expensive gift. Yes, I suppose that uh, this ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. I suppose that on one level at least is true. But if you give Jesus the best you have to give, it will never be a waste. You will not regret it in the end. Jesus was not a wasteful consumer. He says in John the sixth chapter, when he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, gather the leftover fragments that nothing will be lost. Jesus wasn't given to wasting things, but he taught the disciples a valuable lesson here, that uh, there are priorities in life in, in how we choose to spend what we have, and nothing you ever give to Jesus is a waste. In fact, her act of service not only brought joy to the heart of Jesus and fragrance to the house, but also blessing to the whole world. The preservation of this episode in the gospel account is encouragement to the rest of us of Mary's act of kindness. And her example stands for all time 
as an example to the rest of us. Her act of devotion took advantage of a limited window of opportunity. How many times do we wait until it is too late and then our opportunity is lost? Not so with Mary. I had a, a teacher one time, a professor at Florida College many years ago, John Clark, who has now gone on to his reward. But he had a sermon and uh, this title of the sermon was Roses of Bethany, Lilies of Arimathea. And the sermon would compare the, the gift of Joseph of Arimathea offering his own tomb to the body of Jesus versus Mary's gift in advance of Jesus' death, the roses of Bethany versus the lilies of Arimathea. And whatever you may think about that comparison, this is true. What Joseph of Arimathea gave was given post-mortem after Jesus had died. What Mary gave was while Jesus was still here before his death, burial, and resurrection. And she gave what she gave to prepare Jesus' body for burial. She had a limited window of opportunity to do some good before he was gone. How many times do we have a limited window of opportunity and we waste it? Take advantage of your opportunities to do good while you still have them. When opportunities present themselves, once they're gone, they're gone. And we need to take advantage of our, our opportunities just as Mary took advantage of hers. Her magnanimous spirit is worthy of imitation. She was large hearted in contrast to the pettiness of the other disciples. And Jesus recognizes this. We can learn a lot from his appraisal of her gift. Last but not least, we can learn much about how the Gospels came down to us. We can learn much about the Gospel accounts themselves. I want you to take note of this. It's a little point, and yet it's huge. Before the Great Commission was issued, the apostles already knew that this message would be international in scope. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that her gift would become part of the Gospel record and would be preached to the whole world. Secondly, the gospel history was already being recorded as the key events were transpiring. I happen to think that Matthew or others were recording in shorthand various events of the, the gospel message as these events were playing out. But even if that is not the case, these events were being recorded mentally by, by 12 apostles as they were witnessing these things. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus would tell them uh, on the same evening later uh, as the morning hours uh, approached, John 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring uh, all these things to your remembrance. So the Holy Spirit would, would guard the apostles' powers of remembrance later on, in fact, years later, as they would record these things in the gospel message 
and they would eventually find their way into the four Gospels as we have them. But make no mistake about it, many factors undergird the, uh, undergird the integrity of the message and how the Bible came down to us. The message of the Bible is not a product of a natural evolutionary development over eons of time, as if almost by accident. There were monumental purposes invested in it from the very beginning, and they were made known to the very first recipients. In other words, from the very outset, the magnitude of what they were dealing with was presented to them. And finally, not only uh, it, with regard to the purpose or the process of revealing this message, but the content itself, the gospel record would turn the world's values on their head. The rich and famous would be forgotten, but nobody who loved God more than anybody else would be remembered. We read in, in 1 Corinthians, for example, with regard to those who embrace the gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 16 through, or 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards, not many who were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's because of Jesus that our lives can amount to something. It's because of Jesus that our lives can be important. In fact, if it were not for Jesus, would Mary of Bethany have ever been remembered in the historical record? Because of Jesus that her life had meaning and value, and it's because of Jesus we read about her in places such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But here's one final thought along these lines I want you to, to, to think about. Why is this account in here to begin with? As we've already taken note, Jesus says, wherever this gospel goes, this account will be part of the message. Interestingly enough, John says in the, in the last gospel that was written, the gospel of John, chapter 20 and verse 30, that there was a selection process in the materials that are there versus the materials that are omitted. He says in John 20 and verse 30, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And he says in verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I wonder about all those other incidents that Jesus said and did that did not find themselves into the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we have what we have versus what we don't have in terms of that selection process? 
I'm going to give you one little hint, and it occurs right here in Matthew 26 and verse 13. The reason that this account is part of the gospel record is because Jesus said so right after it occurs. Wherever this gospel goes, what she has done is going to be part of it. From the very outset, from the very beginning, he identifies what would be part of the gospel record. Some amazing lessons that we can learn from all of this. We learn a lot from the gift itself. We learn a lot from the criticism of the gift. We learn a lot from Jesus' appraisal of the gift in light of his answer to that criticism. And we can learn a lot about the gospel accounts. These are all things that we can learn, potentially. But the real question is, will we learn? In the true spirit of Mary, may we progress from beyond sitting at Jesus' feet and learning to rising up and becoming a true servant. That will be the real test of whether or not we have truly learned.